0: Let's bow our heads now before we look into God's word. Heavenly Father, we come before Thee as needy children, knowing that Thou art the source of all things. Everything flows from Thee, even our very life. We know that every good and perfect gift comes down from above. And so, Heavenly Father, we turn to Thee not just for physical needs, for things like healing and and restoration, um, for uh, financial needs or or other things that touch this life, but also for our spiritual needs. We know there's an inner man inside of each one of us that longs to be reunited uh, with its maker. Heavenly Father, speak to us now, even as thou art speaking through many other preachers in many other countries throughout this entire world, perhaps where thy word is going forth. Let it go forth effectively, there as well as here. And may thy Holy Spirit be present now among us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've opened to Paul's first letter to Timothy. First letter to Timothy, chapter 2. like to read from the second chapter into the third as well. I exhort, therefore, that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ, and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but, which becometh women professing godliness, with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, One that ruleth his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity? For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued. Not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. I've read both chapters 2 and 3 of 1 Timothy. I didn't really premeditate the scripture for this morning. I just began flipping. But this chapter is a very, these chapters are a very important cornerstone of Christian doctrine. One that is being neglected to the church's peril. It's very much against the spirit of the times. It begins with these words. I exhort, therefore, that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And then it goes on for, to add specificity to that, for kings and for all that are in authority. Let's stop there for a moment. Does that sound current? Not at all. Not at all. Authority figures, it seems, are now being made to be dragged down. Whether authority figures in government, within the family, within the church. Authority is a dirty word. Self-determination is the rule of the day. Figure it out for yourself. Don't follow what someone else would tell you to do. You know, the internet is an interesting place. I've observed something very interesting over the last number of years. In our face-to-face dealings, we are increasingly walking on eggshells when we speak with people. We have to be so careful what we say, how we say it, and how it may be interpreted. That's one side of things. And you can be called out in front of the House of Commons for what you may have been said, in, in private somewhere, uh, in what was maybe meant in jest, and it becomes a big political issue. That's one side of things. But on the other side, if you go online and you look at, say, a news story that has a comments section at the bottom, the vitriol and, and hatred and uh, horrendous name-calling and filthy language that is spewed out in the comments section is appalling what a contrast to what's expected from us in a public arena in the workplace or in the school in the house of parliament if we talk about the government of the of the land and what comes out when you're an anonymous commenter in cyberland interesting it's almost like something has been repressed in one area and pops up somewhere else and we see what, what the attitude of people are, what the attitudes are. We don't see, even among those who call themselves religious, even among those who call themselves Christians, supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks for kings and for those that are in authority. You're much more likely to hear what the current administration is doing wrong. Or how at least this administration is not as bad as the one that could have been. That's a popular thread. And the things that are said, even by those who claim to have a religious standpoint, they obviously either haven't read this verse or are completely ignoring it. We spend our entire existence under authority whether we know it or not. That's a heavy thought, but scripture clearly tells us that one day, every word, every action, and even every thought will be judged. We don't often think about that. I confess, I don't often think about that, and sometimes the things that I say, or even the things that I do, or especially the thoughts that I might have, I would not want exposed before a a multitude listening at that court date with the judge of all the earth. But this is what we're asked to do. It was once said, and I like this quote, one can ignore reality. You can ignore reality, but you cannot ignore the effects of ignoring reality. I'll say that again. You can ignore reality, but you cannot ignore the effects of ignoring reality. Do you want to understand the social ills in this world? Look at this chapter. God lays it out for us. As much as it may not be very appropriate for our time, this is the pattern So, traditionally in our church, we have distanced ourselves from the politics of the land. From the enforcement of the laws of the land. Why? By the nature of being Christians, we should automatically follow the laws as they align with God's word. It should not be an issue for us. We are used to being under authority. That's not a foreign concept for us. We even are under authority when we can't see the authority figure. Christ himself told us, don't, uh, don't perform service as, as, as to, uh, to, to please men, but for the one who sees everything, serve him. We're used to that already. That should not be a big issue. But even when the government does things that are wrong, we are still to intercede for them, to pray for them, and to give thanks even for them as much as we are able. Do we often do that? Do we mention the government in our prayers? Do we pray for them and intercede that they would realize when they are doing something that is in contravention to God's word that they would come to the light and realize what they are doing to the fabric of the society in which we live? Our children attend the public school. I know that's not a popular choice for every family, and each family should make those choices according to the dictates of their conscience and what they read in God's word. But we've chosen to put our children, at least for now, in the public school system. One of the things we do at the beginning of each year is write a letter to the teacher explaining that we not only appreciate what they're doing in in teaching children, but that we support it as well. But that in supporting it, we also want to let them know a little bit about our family and our perspective. So we try to make that clear, that we are there, we support them. We're not trying to fight them. But there may be things that, are, that, are, that don't fit, perhaps, exactly with our way of doing things. And we would prefer to be excused, perhaps, from some of those things. Or we may not participate in some of those things. And the interesting thing is the teachers have been very, very supportive of this. They've received it very well. Society, especially, I guess, in the 60s and 70s, were told to resist authority. But that's not God's model. God's model is to beseech, to intercede, to pray for authority. You will be, in my experience and from what I see in history, much more effective with those in in authority if you follow the Bible's way. Men of Scripture have been elevated to very high positions not because they were um, backstabbing or, uh, or, or manipulative in their, in their pursuit of power, but almost the opposite. They were seeking to serve God, and God promoted them, and, and it became clear to those in authority that these men were trusted men. I love the verse that talks about Joseph when he's brought before Pharaoh, and he gives Pharaoh the answer to his problem. His, his, the issue of the dream that he, that he had, and how that dream was a forecast of what was going to happen over the next 14 years in, his, in the earth in that area. He lays it all out, and so he tells the king select someone who's prudent and trustworthy to be over the gathering of the goods in the seven good years to store it up for the seven lean years. He gives him the solution. And it's amazing what the Pharaoh does next. He looks around at that court, which he knew very well, very well. He knew about the intrigue, and if you read a little bit of history, as I have, the history of intrigue in the Egyptian court was uh, accumulated in Cleopatra and some of the stuff that happened in in her era, but it was happening long before uh, murderers and, and, and sedition and all sorts of power plays going on in the background. So this pharaoh on the throne of Egypt looks around at all those courtiers around him that had been groomed for positions of power and says... What man can we choose that's going to uh, to be trustworthy like you are? This slave I have no idea about. In fact, I've only heard that he can interpret dreams. That's all I know about this man. Wow. Could it be also that Joseph, in prison, under the authority of that same pharaoh, was praying for that man, and the Lord was preparing his heart? Could it be? How is our heart being prepared? Men seek greatness. Women too, for that matter. I'm not trying to, when I say men, I mean it to be inclusive. We naturally seek our own self-promotion and greatness. But we often go about it the wrong way. Instead of realizing the authority structure that is in place and operating according to God's rules, We find it easier to either sit back and criticize or perhaps get involved and and try to make things come out in our favor. I don't want to make it seem like everyone is manipulative, but those instincts are within us. We have this infection from Adam that says, I want to be as God. I can make decisions just as good as he can, knowing what I know. I can decide what's good and evil for myself. And so the world is largely in the mess that it is because of this. We are to live a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. That in and of itself, if we were to live in that way, is both good and acceptable in the sight of God. That's what he expects of us. And he says, that's that's a good place for you to be in interceding for those that are in authority, even those... Now, remember, when this was written, you have a pagan Roman government that was, in some cases, allowing or even participating in the, in the persecution of the church. And Paul says these things. If there's an excuse not to support the government, those are two excellent ones right there. And yet Paul says these things, because he realized that the position of power for the Christian is not uh, found... in the the actions and, 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 and habits of the world. Christ, before Pilate, said, now is my kingdom not from hence, else would my servants fight that I would not be delivered to the Jews. The kingdom that we serve, brothers and sisters, is a very different kingdom that operates under very different rules. We must remember that at all times. Now, the motivation behind all of this praying, even for the evil authorities that we see over us, is this. God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Very clear. God does not arbitrarily choose who is saved and who is damned. He wishes all men to be saved. And we should pray for the salvation of all men. Does that mean that all will be saved? No. Why? Because God has allowed us free will. It's that simple. In his sovereignty, in his position of power and authority, he says, I give you the right to choose. You can accept or you can reject. That choice is up to you. I will not force myself upon you. Now, some have called that weakness but I don't think that is at all. In fact, it's only one who is supremely confident of his authority that allows the ones under his authority to choose. But of course we are responsible ultimately for that choice. God gave us Christ Jesus who was our ransom to be testified in due time. And Paul then goes on to say, whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. Verity is another word for truth. Faith and truth. This man who was so steeped in Judaism and understood the ins and the outs of the law, he was the one selected by God to go about this. Preaching to the Gentiles. And the preaching was going to be in faith and verity. So, what is faith? Faith is based on truth, they're not divorced one from another. Faith is based on an inference from a series of facts, but that must eventually jump a gap. What does that mean? I heard it explained this way. There is a subatomic particle called a neutrino. The neutrino cannot be seen, measured, or weighed. Yet, what we know about the laws of science and physics, when placed together in a chain, will lead, one, to the assumption that not only that there is a neutrino, but we can say with a high degree of certainty that we know many things about it having not seen one, weighed one, measured one. How does it work for us? I explained it this way a little while ago to someone I was speaking with. The Word of God, compiled over thousands of years by some 40 to 50 authors, I can't remember the exact number, both Jew and Gentile, tells me some amazing things about myself. It explains myself to myself. It shows me why I desire the good yet find myself doing the evil. Why these these things wrestle within me and why I need a savior who can change my very nature. It rings true in every point that I can test it on myself. Now, in nature, I can look outside and I can see evidence for design. I can see evidence for origin. Even science will give you that. They say that there was a time where uh, matter And energy did not exist. There was a beginning. So I take all of these things, both the things that I know about myself and the things that I can see in the world and test by laws, not theories, but by laws of science, I place all of these things together and I say, there must be a God. But further to that, I say that that God that exists must be the God of the Scripture because what he has explained to me about myself. And therefore, the things that I cannot test about him, the things that he simply reveals through his word, I am inclined to trust and believe as true based on what I already know. Truth and faith. It really is not all that unreasonable. In fact, it's downright scientific. These are the things that we believe based upon. Uh, what, we, what we see. So, now when we continue reading, and I realize time is, is getting away from us, and I would like to just touch on a few things. I don't want to meditate on each of the points. But it tells us something now about relationships in the family, in the church, and in the authority structure of the church, which are two very dirty words in today's world. The things here seem hard to take for a 21st century person, especially for the ladies. It talks about adorning for the women. It talks about a secondary, it would seem, a secondary place in God's plan. But that's not it at all. Do you realize that at one point in time after the creation, there was one being, Adam, which had all the attributes God intended for humanity within him. But he was alone. So what does Scripture say? Does it say that God reached down and grabbed some more dirt, some more clay, and breathed into it and made a woman for Adam? No. It says he took from Adam, from his side, a rib and fashioned Eve. Now the scientific mind, of course, will reject these things. But think about this now as a picture of something else. I heard it explained this way on my wedding day. He didn't pick a bone from the man's head that woman would be over him. He didn't pick a bone from his foot that women would be under him. He picked a bone from his side, close to his heart, that she would be by him. You see, at one time, both attributes of men and women were contained in that one perfect man. Adam had all of those attributes, I believe. From Adam, this piece was separated out into a separate being that Adam could relate to. And so the attributes, instead of being concentrated in one, were now shared between two. And God intended that the two would be one, that the true picture of what God was trying to communicate about man, about putting his very character and essence into this creation of his, would be best explained by a man and a woman. You would see both God's tenderness and empathy. You would see also his strength and authority. And together, this picture is to be. You see, what the modern feminist movement has missed is the beauty of God's design. The authority was never, the man was never to oppress the woman. They were to be complementary to each other, beside each other, fulfilling roles that the other could not perform, not effectively. So what has Satan done? He's taken these things, and he's distorted them, and he's perverted them, and he's used them also to rip apart the family. That God created in the beginning. This is God's answer to putting things right again. And though it may stick in your throat a little bit when you look at it the way that it's written out here, this is the intention of God's design. You ignore it at your own peril. I mentioned before tools, tools are designed for specific purposes to fit a specific task. Yes, I can use a wrench to drive a nail if I really need to, but it's not an effective tool for it. The thing designed for the purpose, you cause damage sometimes when you use the wrong tool for the job. And I think this is what we're seeing also in our culture, a breakdown of these things. There is nothing more beautiful and secure In human relationship than a properly functioning family the children are happy the couple willingly serve each other the man is willing to lay down his life for his children and his wife everyone takes their part and it's the whole the whole you see Satan's managed to divide these two roles and focus on them individually in isolation that was never God's intent The chapters go on to explain about this, the, the places of authority in the church, the necessity for them, who should be selected for those positions, and why. And it's interesting, in each case, it talks about the family. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? You never take a junior and promote him directly to CEO. There is always a process of steps, of training, of vetting, of testing, that eventually results in more and more authority. And so it is in the church. Do you realize that Christ followed the same path as well? It tells us in Hebrews, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. He went through the hardest series of tests that man has ever endured, and he passed with flying colors. How do we know that? Because God resurrected him from the dead, and he says, it says he has been given a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee would bow. He did it all right, in spite of everything being against him. He proved himself. Now it says... He is the head and we are the body that is meditated on in other places. The body of Christ is still here, is still ministering as he did when he was here. These elements, we call this, this whole thing the church, the body of Christ. And of course, that is the universal body. We don't, we don't know the full extent of that. There are other believers in other places that are also following and serving Christ. And though it has been perhaps misunderstood in the past, even in our own denomination, I think we can all say with agreement that Christ's church is obviously much bigger than the apostolic Christian church. His work is still being performed. And the church itself is a microcosm of the larger church. There are are building blocks within that structure which are the families, the little authority structures that are to be the church in miniature that the world can see. And those families get sent out into the, into the rest of the world six days a week that the world could see what God really intended, what he had in mind, how it should function. Our families should be pictures of that. I think it's an absolute travesty that in the evangelical church in America, I'm just going from those statistics because I know them a little bit better, that the divorce rate is about the same as it is everywhere else in the society. That's a shame. That tells me that a good portion of those that call themselves Christians are not Christians at all. If they cannot understand the basics of that relationship and and the relation to authority, how can it be? They are to be the picture to the world of what Christ is to his church. The head does not walk around without a body. And so Satan makes his inroads and destroys families and bends understanding of of genders and roles. Have these roles been abused in the past? Absolutely. There's examples of that. But where it functions properly according to the will of God, it's a thing of beauty. We all know families like that. You say, "What what a lovely couple. It's just a joy to spend time with them and to spend time with their family and to see their children, how happy they are, how how, uh, how content they are in their, in, their, um, in, their, in, their, in their home and in their identity. What a beautiful thing. We can acknowledge that. But often we don't like to see the reasons for that. We'd like to borrow a little bit of the world's way of doing things and mix it in and hope it comes out God's way. It doesn't work that way, brothers and sisters. It doesn't work that way. If you want God's blessings, you must do things God's way. In the home and in the church, it's no different. I'd like to stop and meditate a little bit on one section before we close. And this perhaps is what would rankle some. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, (laughs) not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression." I would imagine that most or many modern churches would ignore this passage of scripture. It's simply not popular. It does not fit with modern interpretations of gender roles. But let's look at it for a moment and try to understand what actually is being taught here. Is it being taught that women are never to teach? I don't think so. The example here, because we have other places in scripture that talk about the teaching roles that women are to enjoy. And in my opinion, the teaching role of the women has been way underutilized in the church, including in our church. It's not just Sunday school, sisters. The older are to teach the younger, and you can teach them so many things. So many things. Practical things. Emotional things. Spiritual things. Older sisters, have you taken aside a younger sister and taught her how to pray? Yes, we follow scripture as it states here that the women are to keep silence in the assembly. We have that. We have that from scripture. If you don't like that, take it up with God. It's not my position to change it. I am under his authority. But among yourselves, older sisters, do you teach the younger sisters to pray? Mothers, do you teach your daughters to pray? I'm thankful that there are some uh, women's Bible study groups that are, that, are, that are getting together, and that's wonderful. The older sisters should also be there to help guide things and share wisdom and share experience because youth teaching, youth doesn't usually work out very well. That's been my experience. It's much better to have a solid, practiced understanding. I remember as a young man, we talking about ideas with my dad, and uh, I, would, I, would, I would present an idea, and he'd look at me and go, no, that's not going to work. And about 95% of the time, he was right, wherever I was able to test it. I thought he was being a wet blanket, but no, that was just the voice of experience talking. And as I get older, I realize that a bit of skepticism is a good thing. It's prudent. You have to be careful. You're responsible for the things that you've already learned. And those things that you've learned need to be shared. They're not meant to be kept to yourself. Both our mistakes and our victories need to be shared. So there's a tremendous opportunity for teaching in the body of Christ in all kinds of areas. Yes, in the assembly we observe what the scripture says. If you don't like that, I'm sorry. If it was up to me, I would change things about scripture. I would even consider changing this. But it's not up to me. I must bow my knees under the authority of Almighty God and do things his way or reap the consequences. And I've found in every point in my life where I have gone against his will, I have suffered for it, not him. As one said, an old rabbi was talking with a young uh, Jewish boy that had gone off to college and had come back an atheist. And he was talking about the commandments of God because, of course, that's very important to the jewish mind and to the jewish way of thinking and he said and what would you say now if i was to break one of those commandments dad he said you cannot break the commandments of god they can only break you and it's true i've seen it lived out in lives and the young here may be skeptical and sneer at these ideas but if you wait long enough you will eat those words and they will be bitter i'm deadly serious i've seen it lived out You want to find happiness and fulfillment, you must do things God's way. And the church is to be the model of that. Some may bristle at the description of the women's appearance, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. Think, who are you to tell me how to decorate my body or what to put on myself? Do you realize if you want to be treated with respect by men that this is the best way to achieve it? Women, I hate to break it to you, but men are made very differently than you. We respond to visual stimulus, to testosterone. If you wish to be valued, carry yourself like a lady. So, what's a lady? I heard it described this way. Your clothing should fit close enough to you that men can tell you are a woman, but not close enough that he wouldn't think you a lady. Makes sense. I have noticed in my own self, and women, I'm being candid here, because I think it's important. When I see a woman that's partially unclothed, or mostly unclothed, it awakens in myself uh, drives and appetites that are very carnal in nature. But when I see a woman that is properly covered, properly covered, it evokes instead a feeling of tenderness and a desire to protect. A woman that's dressed properly, that's being molested by other men, that that gets my blood boiling. That really bothers me. I want to intervene. You have no right to take this beautiful thing and and tarnish it, trash it with your words and actions. I'm telling you how men are made, at least in my experience. So again, you can ignore these things that the word of God writes and reap the consequences, or you can follow them and also reap the consequences They're both there for us. These things that God gives us are not meant to be oppression, are not meant to be heavy. They're like a a user manual for the human race. They're to show us what proper function is. Sometimes I get something and and, uh, buy something and start assembling it, and I don't look too closely at the directions. I've learned from experience that's a bad idea. I sometimes break something, and then you think, oh dummy, why didn't you look at the instructions first? And now I'm learning, and by this point, now even when the kids get something, like, wait, we're gonna read the instructions first. We're gonna go by what the designer had in mind, and that way it'll function properly. It's no different for us. If you want a happy marriage, if you want a joyful family, if you want a fulfilling and vibrant church. You must do things God's way. There is no other way. I'm sorry. Sometimes I wish there were other ways, but that's not my call. That's not my call. Those that are older, I think this will ring true with you. You've seen how it works. You've seen how lives can be ruined by going the wrong way. Those that are younger... Humble yourselves a little bit and look to those that are older that have seen some of those things and benefit from their experience. A smart man learns from his mistakes, but a wise man learns from the mistakes of others. May the Lord add whatever was lacking. Amen. Would a brother please select a hymn. I ask the other brother that's assisting to have a conclusion, and the reason that I do that is a couple things. One, I'm sure there's something that I've missed that could be better expounded on, and second, I think it's also a good way to put into practice what Paul taught, that if one has a revelation, the other ought to remain silent, so that the other would be able to share that. But in this case, I I diverted a little bit from that, partially because there's something I think I should mention in conclusion. Why does this problem exist between men and women? Why is there the battle of the sexes? This is another point that I can test where the Bible has something to say and I can test and see that what it says is true. In fact, the truth that the Bible reveals about the nature of the battle between the sexes, I don't think is revealed anywhere else. I've never seen it. The truth is this. God said when Adam and Eve sinned and they were put out of the garden that there would now exist a power struggle between men and women. Why? Sin is death to relationship. When sin entered, that perfect relationship, that side by side relationship, now had a wedge driven in between it, and there was going to be repercussions for those sins. God told the man, You are to be the one that's authority here. It was your responsibility to guard your wife, to watch out for her. You failed. It's on your head. It said, Adam sinned. Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned. The woman is told, you need to now be in subjection to your husband. And the interesting thing about the way that the scripture says that is, it it seems to make it clear that the woman is not going to like that role of submission to the husband, and the man is going to try to dodge that position of authority that he's been given. It's interesting to see how that works. In the family, the man is much more likely, I think, to roll over on a lot of these things and just say, fine, fine, have it your way. The woman is also perhaps a little less likely to say, I don't see it quite your way, but I'm willing to submit to your direction in this. Those are the two hard things for us to do. I know that as a husband. There's times where I need to take the difficult path, the one of authority that says, I don't think this is good for our family, honey. We just we need to do things this way, even though I know it's going gonna, it's gonna to lead to some, some friction. That's the hard decision. In fact, that's the decision of love. If I really care for my family, if I really care for my wife, there's sometimes things I'm going to need to do that my family will not like. A good leader is often called to do things that are unpopular but need to be done. The problem with our modern system of government and democracy is there's very little of that that happens because it's a popularity contest that gets staged every four years. And if you promise enough free stuff, people will vote you in. And so the hard decisions don't get made. And things like debt continue to accumulate and no one bothers to try to figure out how to get rid of it. That's the truth. You see this acted out. I found no other book or philosophy that adequately explains why this power struggle exists. And the issue of submission. So, women, you're you're getting what you're asking for. I'm talking now to the entire gender, of course. There is increasing equality. In fact, women now are becoming in North America anyway are becoming better educated and better paid than men. And now, if you listen to some of the talks uh, uh, by, by some of the intellectuals, one from U of T here, you can find out what's happening. These high-priced, powerful women are burning out. They're getting into their 30s and realizing, I've been chasing the top of the corporate ladder. Now I'm there, and it's empty. I want a family. And they feel guilty, guilty, because of these desires. Why? I'm not saying everyone needs to have children but if the desire is there why should you feel guilty for it it's natural ladies God reminds you of it every month whether you want it or not it's part of the design submission to God is hard for all of us men and women Men, it's hard to take the position of authority and do what's right. Women, it's hard to submit to men because we may not understand their direction at the time. But like our relationship with God, you need to trust the heart of the one making the decision. I don't always understand why God allows things to happen in a certain way, but I need to trust his heart. That's where faith comes in. I've told you about the inference, at least part of it, That leads me to believe that not only that there is a God, but that the God that exists is the God of the Bible. But there are parts in there where God says, look, if you want to please me, you have to believe me. It's not actually all that difficult. I find the same thing with my children. If I have to explain everything to them, why they should do something and why it's good for them, it ceases to be obedience. They're simply agreeing with me and doing it of their own volition. But it does please me when I tell them, could you please do this? And they do it without any questions. I say, thank you. Do you know why I asked you to do that? And sometimes I explain it to them and show how beautiful it works together. It's an opportunity. One of the characteristics mentioned was hospitality and I'll close with this. We had some guests, a little bit more unexpectedly on shorter notice, come stay with us last night. It was really nice for a change to see the older kids especially pitching in helping clean up and getting the house together. And at the end, I said, look, do you see how nice it is when things are put, put away and, and things are in order and the house is clean? Isn't this so much nicer? Yeah. He said, and you know what? If we keep it a little bit more like this, it won't be so much work next time. And we can have more company come over. Yeah, we like that. I see how even situations like that can be useful to teach my children about how these things that God wants of us, that we would be hospitable, can be taught, and there are spiritual benefits for those things. Forgive me for going slightly over time. May the Lord add whatever was lacking, and I ask your forgiveness where I have not stated things correctly. Amen.